Well, good morning, everyone. <coughs> Welcome to Advent Hope to our lesson study time. <coughs> and <coughs> we've been using our study time here to go through different books of the Bible. And we've gone through Daniel, Revelation, and Hebrews. Um, and now we're going to take a look at the book of First Peter. And <clears throat> First Peter is, of course, written by the Apostle Peter. And there's two epistles, so we may, um, we'll probably do Second Peter after we finish First Peter, considering that it's sort of a continuation with some similar themes. Uh, before we get into our study for this morning, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day <clears throat> that we can come together and study your word. We pray for a special blessing as we start the study of a new book, the first Peter, that we will have special understanding and that you will give us guidance to help us to understand the message for the times in which we live now. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you here have made a study of the book of First Peter and also of Second Peter. <clears throat> so not so much. It's it's a, a an epistle that we sometimes read <clears throat> for devotional value. But as as we're going to see as we go through this book, there's <clears throat> a lot of meat here for us as Seventh Adventist Christians in the last days. <clears throat> if you look at the big theme of the book of First Peter, and it's sometimes helpful to do that as we start the study of a book. <clears throat> if you look at the theme of First Peter, um, Peter starts off with a greeting like most epistles do, and then in the first ten verses or so, he talks about the wonderful salvation that has been given to us. And then starting about verse 13 through the end of chapter 4 is a call to encourage us to live steadfastly in the Christian faith. And the examples he uses, chapter 1 we have, hey, we have the trial of our faith. So gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, be obedient. We are born again of incorruptible seed. Chapter 2, he gives us the example of Jesus, who was steadfast in his experience here on the earth. Jesus, in 1 Peter chapter 2, was the one who, when he, was, when he suffered, he threatened not. He, when reviled, he reviled not again. There was no guile found in his mouth. And so we see the example of Jesus, how to live steadfastly here on this earth. Chapter 3 gives us some examples, some counsel to husbands and wives. <clears throat> Talks about being ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And chapter 4 again talks about, hey, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. And the idea that's being painted here is, God has given us a great salvation. We'll see that here in chapter 1. We have this great salvation, but while we live here on this earth, we may suffer through very severe trials, the trial of our faith. But Christ suffered for us as well. So learn 
to look to Jesus and arm yourselves with the same mind. And that is the hope of salvation that we have and Christ has given us an example of how to live. Then chapter 5, he ends with um, some counsel and exhortation to the elders and the members of the Christian church. So that's sort of an overview of the theme of First Peter. So why don't we go ahead and get into First Peter. And um, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 1 through 3 of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Go ahead. Okay, so here's sort of the introduction to 1 Peter, and Peter is introducing himself here in verse 1. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of the 12. He was one of the 12 who lived with Jesus and learned from him for three and a half years. So here Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is going to share with us the Word of God. And he was an apostle who lived directly with Jesus. So his testimony is of high value. Now, of course, there were other Bible writers who didn't live directly with Jesus, and that doesn't make Peter's word more important than theirs. All I'm saying is, here is someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus. So it's a privilege to study the Word of God from someone who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. So that makes this a very powerful book to study because Peter, as an apostle of Christ, was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He saw the miracles. He saw how Jesus lived his life. He was the one who denied Jesus. He was the one who repented. He is the one who Jesus gave him a chance to redeem himself by saying, do you love me, Peter, three times, for the same three times that Peter denied him. And Peter is the one who was the apostle to the Jewish nation and who eventually was taken to Rome and was crucified upside down. So we know that Peter, after his conversion, and Jesus said, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. We know Peter was converted. And so what he says in this epistle is a message from a converted man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which will give us an understanding of how to live a converted life here on this earth. So Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ 
to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at the map, and you can look at it actually in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, you can see the names of all these towns. The, the one name we're probably most familiar with is Galatia, and of course the word Asia is familiar as well. This is what we would call Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey would be <clears throat> the region that Peter is addressing. So this gives us the idea that <clears throat> Peter also went beyond Jerusalem and Judea into other places to minister. <clears throat> In verse 2, <clears throat> as we've read, Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, do you know what the word elect means? <coughs> yes, it means chosen of God. <coughs> so, Peter is writing to a group of people who are elect or the chosen of God. And how are the people that he is writing to elect or chosen of God? Well, the verse says how. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. So how are we chosen of God? through the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God considers us elect or chosen, the people who are elect or chosen are going to have an experience of sanctification and obedience. So to say that you are a Christian to say that you are elect or the chosen of God and to live apart from Christ in every way in your life or half of the way of your life would not be a demonstration that you're the elect or chosen of God. The demonstration of being elect is through sanctification of the Spirit. Notice it's through the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us power to be sanctified unto obedience. Now, I want to just cross-reference the word elect in Romans chapter 8. And this is probably one of the famous passages that uses this word. <clears throat> and we're looking at verse, um, starting in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, sorry. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Paul says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So notice. <clears throat> who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who are the, le the elect? Those who are chosen. Who can lay anything to the charge of those whom God has chosen? Because it's God who justifies. Now notice, in Romans, Paul says, those who are elect have been justified by God. In 1 Peter, 
Peter says those that have those who are elect or chosen of God live a sanctified life of obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in both instances, Paul is saying in Romans 8, hey, the elect are God's chosen ones who are saved. They are justified. In 1 Peter, Peter is saying the elect are God's chosen ones who are sa saved and they live sanctified lives of obedience. So what you see in Romans and 1 Peter is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of the Bible say God's elect, those that are chosen of God, those who are saved, have justification and sanctification. The Bible writers do not separate them out and say God's elect are justified and sanctification is a fruit of salvation that has nothing to do with it. The Bible writers say God's elect are justified and they're sanctified. So if we let the Bible interpret itself, it answers the question of the role of justification and sanctification and salvation. God's elect, they're justified, and they're sanctified, and it's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Comment. 13. Right. So for those of you who didn't hear the verse, that's 2 Thessalonians 2.13, a very important verse. God has chosen you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. So once again, we see sanctification is part of the salvation process. And again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not our work, it's God's work in us. So as you can see, Peter is explaining the process of salvation and it's interesting that the very first thing he describes in the salvation process is sanctification and obedience that's apparently the emphasis the Holy Spirit wanted to place in this chapter in this book elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and of course the blood of Jesus Christ is what justifies us. So you certainly see the concept of justification in this verse. Um, just, we're justified by his blood. It's not of our own works. It's only through his blood. But as we're going to see, through faith in his blood, we not only receive justification, but we also receive through the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctification. And you had a comment here? Yeah. What does that look like in practical Good, good question. So what does it look like in practical terms? We're talking about justification and sanctification. We're throwing out these terms, and that's a very good point. You will see, um, as you go through First Peter, going through the trial of your faith, there's no better way to experience sanctification than to be tried, the fiery trial of faith. That is what helps us to grow in grace. Um, as Ellen White tells us, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. That doesn't mean we never get there. It means that every day we die to the Lord. Here's how I would explain in basic terms, without spending too much time, but just to, to look at justification and sanctification in its most basic term. Justification by faith, I mean, that could take an hour alone just to describe. But justification by faith, we accept Christ's sacrifice in our behalf. And if you look at the book of Romans, to be justified 
is to be dead to sin. We studied that in our prayer meeting series a few months ago. And Ellen White actually even says in Faith and Works, page 100, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So what happens is we see Jesus on the cross. We realize that we are a sinner in need of the grace of Christ. We see what he did for us on the cross, so we surrender our lives 100% to a being who is so lovely and so wonderful that he would die for us. So we surrender all to Jesus Christ. We repent. And in that instant of repentance and surrender, we are justified by faith. Sanctification, which is the work of a lifetime, is the, the continual day-by-day dying to self to maintain our salvation justification experience. So every day is a new day with Christ. Yesterday we live by faith, but today is a new day. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. And so sanctification is the work of a lifetime because every day we die to self. So that's what it looks like in practical life. Justification is the moment we give our heart to Christ for the first time. We're justified by faith. We keep that experience as we continue to walk in faith through sanctification. And both together are part of the salvation experience. Now, continuing on in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, there's some powerful illustrations and powerful points in verse 3. So, we, we know where to give our praise and thanks to it's to God and the to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bless him, we thank him, we praise him because according to the abundant mercy of the Father, Jesus Christ has been raised again from the dead. And because of that, we have been begotten again unto a lively hope. Now, what does that mean, to be begotten again to a lively hope? If you study the phrase there, that's basically describing being born again. So if you've been begotten again, that means you are a, a new child again, or you've experienced a new birth again. That's basically what Paul is, or Peter is saying. I'm used to teaching from Paul's books. But anyway, um, that's what Peter is saying. And the word begotten, we know this, it's used in the Bible. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave us his only begotten son. But then in Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. And in the book of Romans, we see that we can be heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ because Jesus was resurrected again. So Jesus went from being the only begotten to being the first begotten, which implies that all those who live by faith are also begotten of the Father, a second, third, fourth, fifth, and on and on, as many as will accept. So, but there's a little bit more to it than this. So according to the abundant mercy of God, he has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, is there anywhere else in scripture 
that equates the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with our salvation experience. Because if you think about it this way, many Christians, when they think about Christ, the end of the salvation experience ends at the cross and they don't think about anything else that happens with respect to salvation and what Christ is doing after the cross. Is the cross crucial to salvation? Absolutely. If the cross doesn't happen, we're not here. There's no point in having this discussion. But Peter is talking about salvation with respect to the resurrection from the dead. So what's he talking about? Does anyone else talk about that in scripture? And if you go back to the book of Romans, I love the book of Romans. If you go to Romans 4, <clears throat> and we don't have time to, to explain all of Romans 4, but the bottom line is Romans 4 is describing the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham was he and Sarah were past childbearing age. They couldn't have children. And God says, as the stars in the heavens, so shall your seed be. And Abraham's like, well, hey, but Eliezer, he could be my servant. He could be the heir. And God says, no, it's going to come from your own bowels. And that's from Genesis 15 as it, relate, as it ties into Romans 4. Abraham then looks up at the stars and he's like, oh, yeah, God is creator. What was I thinking? He can do whatever he wants. And, and if you look at the language in Romans 4, starting in verse 19, for example, he was not weak in faith. Verse 20, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21 says, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Verse 22, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So Abraham's fully persuaded that what God promises, I will give you a child, even though you're dead. And the, the analogy or the allegory is, God promised Abraham that even though it was impossible, he would have a new birth in his family. And the illustration for us is, hey, we are dead in trespasses and sins. It's impossible to live a life that's according to the Spirit. Except as we remember that if we live by faith and believe in the creator power of God, then we will have that new birth experience just as Abraham did. And verse 22, it says, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. But notice verse 23, it says, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Verse 24, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, in 1 Peter, Peter says, we have been begotten again to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you study the rest of scripture, you're like, oh yeah. Righteousness will be imputed to us also if we believe on him, which is the Father, who raised up Jesus from the dead. So righteousness was imputed to Abraham because he was fully persuaded and righteousness will be, imputed to us, will be imputed to us if we believe on him who raised up Jesus from the dead. Now, what's the point? What is Paul trying to make? If you go to Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> starting in verse 3, <clears throat> 
Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin, and the marginal reading for freed from sin is justified. He that is dead is justified. So what's Paul saying? as it connects to what Peter's saying, that we've been begotten to a lively hope by the resurrection from the dead. Well, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Who raised up Jesus from the dead? It was the glory of the Father. Who do we believe in? We believe in the Father. What did the Father do? He raised up Jesus from the dead. What will he do if we believe in him who raised up Jesus from the dead? He will raise us up to walk in newness of life in the same miraculous manner that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And if you believe that, righteousness is imputed to you. That's justification by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Exactly. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you don't believe, you don't have faith that that's possible, then it's not going to happen. But it's interesting, in verse 3, Peter says, we have been begotten again unto a lively hope. It's a powerful hope. It's a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have the hope of being raised to walk in newness of life. And Jesus was raised from the dead, and if you go on in Romans 6, it says, Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more because death has no more dominion over him. When we've been raised to walk in newness of life, sin has no more dominion over us. So the comparison, Christ is raised from the dead, we're raised to walk in newness of life, death has no more dominion over Christ, sin has no more dominion over the believer. And that's the experience of sanctification. So you have justification by faith, you believe that God can raise you up to walk in newness of life, you have the new birth experience, and then sanctification is the continual walk in that pathway. Now, if you continue on in verse 4, describing this experience, verse 4 says that we've been begotten again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now you have to understand the audience that Peter is writing to. This epistle is believed to have been written around the same time that the book of Hebrews was written, so around 66 AD. And the Christian church by this time had gone through tremendous persecution. There had been a tremendous amount of bloodshed. So to hear the apostle who had been close to Christ, he'd been one of the three, to hear him say, hey, that we have a hope in an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, that had to be a powerful source of encouragement 
because living, imagine living day to day, week to week, wondering, hey, is the persecution going to heat up again? Are they going to come after us and throw us into prison? Are they going to put us to death? And to hear the Apostle Peter say, hey, you have an incorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven for you. That had to be a tremendous source of encouragement to the believers at that time. And, and it makes me wonder sometimes, you know, how passive and flippant we can be when we talk about heaven and about the incorruptible inheritance that God has reserved for each one of us. Do we really appreciate what Jesus went through through his death to make that possible for us? Do we really appreciate what the early Christian church went through to preserve the faith that we now have? You know, in, in the book of First Timothy, it says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And it makes you wonder, if there's no persecution going on, are we really living that godly life in Christ Jesus that Peter is going to describe because Peter's going to go through this book of 1st Peter now and say hey that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes with fire might be found unto praise honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ he goes on to say beloved think it not strange the fiery trial that is to try you now having said that there may be some of you here today that are going through some very severe trials that I don't know about so I'm not saying, hey, we're just all living, you know, decadent lives and not being tried. I'm not saying that. Maybe some of you are, are silently suffering. So it's more of a self-examination. Am I just going with the flow? Every time a testing point comes up, I just kind of compromise to fit in so I don't, you know, rock the boat. I don't ruffle feathers. And at the end of the day, you're not being persecuted because you have nothing to stand for. That's something that you should ask yourself alone with God in your quiet time with Him. But we have a promise of an incorruptible inheritance that's undefiled, it fades not away, it's reserved in heaven for us. So this incorruptible inheritance is reserved for the elect, those who are chosen of God, those who have the experience of sanctification unto obedience. And of course, I didn't say much about the word obedience when we looked at it earlier, but those who love God will keep his commandments. They will obey him. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice, those who are elect of, or chosen of God those who experience sanctification and obedience of the Spirit, those who have an inheritance that's incorruptible, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven, are kept by the power of God through faith. So we understand that faith, as we've studied already in this chapter, is believing in God who raised up Jesus from the dead, that he will raise us up to walk in newness of life. And when we believe that, when we have that faith, we are kept by the power of God. And what is the power of God? Well, we've seen it in this chapter. God is so powerful that he could raise Jesus from the dead. 
And he, he didn't only raise Jesus from the dead, he's raised others from the dead. He's raised Moses from the dead. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the, the widow of Nain's son from the dead. There's others. And you know, Abraham in Hebrews 11, even though there had never been a resurrection, because God had promised to him that seed, he said, well, if God's telling me to kill Isaac, God is so powerful, he'll just raise my son Isaac up from the dead and continue the promise as he always said, and he's just testing my faith. That's what faith is, believing in the impossible. And so we are kept by the power of God through faith. So we believe that God can raise us up to walk in newness of life, even though it seems impossible. We look at our past experience and we say, you know, I look at my whole life and it's a record of, of continual falling into rebellion and sin. How can God really give me a life of faith to walk in newness of life where I am really dead to sin, where the old man is crucified and Christ lives in me? Well, when we believe in the power of God and we surrender our lives every day, asking Him to come into our hearts, by faith, the power of God will work in our lives. And notice, it will keep us. We're kept by the power of God unto salvation. And makes you, the word kept, it makes you think of Jude 24, where Jude says, Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling. So we are kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation. So notice, this kind of faith, believing in this kind of power, having this kind of experience of being kept from falling, being kept from the power, through the power of God, by the power of God, is the experience of salvation. That is the experience of salvation. So we are kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, Notice when it's going to be revealed, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter wrote this in 66 AD. This was four years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And as you study Matthew 24, and, and as you see how Christ describes the end of the world, he ties in the destruction of Jerusalem to that. And in Hebrews chapter 1, Paul also says these last times. But yet the book is not only written for the Jews just before the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem, but it's also written for God's people down to the end of time. So Peter is saying, hey, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, God's going to have a group of people who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, and it will be revealed just before Jerusalem is destroyed. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the application is also there that just before Jesus comes the second time, there will be a group of people who will be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, and they will be revealed in the last time. There will be a group of people who will be kept by the power of God through faith. When everybody else says it's impossible to live according to what the Bible says, there will be a group of people who say, I live by the word of God and the word of God alone, and I'm kept by the power of his word. Now, we're about out of time for today. This was sort of the introduction to the book. I'm just going to get through a couple more verses here before we have about three more minutes, it looks like. So verse 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So 
why would Peter say, wherein ye greatly rejoice? Because we have an incorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven for us, and that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. So we have the promise of an incorruptible inheritance in heaven. We have the promise that we are being kept by the power of God. And so, therefore, we greatly rejoice. Praise God for what he is providing for us. But then he goes on to say, so we greatly rejoice, though now for the time being, though now for a season, if need be, we are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So hey, here's the promise so we can greatly rejoice in that. But you know, here on this earth right now, it might be kind of tough. And so verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now notice what Peter is saying here. He's talking about the trial of our faith and how it's more precious than gold that perishes with fire. Now when you think about gold in the fire, what happens when you put gold in the fire? You purify it. We all know this. And what Paul is, or Peter is saying is the trials of our faith are what purify us. It's what keeps us in our salvation experience. And the power of God keeps us if we hold on to him through faith during these experiences. And these experiences make our faith stronger and it makes our salvation more sure each time we go through a trial and we're kept by the power of God's word. So the trials of our faith are more precious than gold being tried in fire because it's purifying a group of people who are elect, chosen of God, who experience sanctification through the Spirit unto obedience, who, are, who believe that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we can be raised up to walk in newness of life, who are kept by the power of God so that even when we are tested, even when we are tried, we will be found purer than gold. And it's interesting if you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, because you may say, man, how in the world can a human being go through that kind of an experience? 1 Peter 2 answers that question and says, look at Jesus. When he suffered, he threatened not. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. No guile was found in his mouth, and he committed all to, to him that judgeth righteously. And so we look to Jesus as an example of how to live when we have the, our faith tried. So we're going to continue our study through the book of First Peter. We've done the first seven verses. Um, there's a lot in this book, and I look forward to continue to study this book with you. Why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the study today. May we be found faithful when you are revealed, when you come in the clouds. May we learn to trust in you at every step of the way. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.